There's a guy named, the name of Jerome was born. He was raised by Christian parents, and he was an intellectual. He studied science, math, language, uh, almost died. He was raised to be a Christian, but he wasn't believed that he really embraced the faith. But after a near-death experience, he had a vision, and he was fearful for his life, later led to his conversion, and he, he uh, his life focus shifted to um, honoring, glorifying Christ in his life, so he began to study the Old Testament, right, which was still widely used, and became stronger in his faith, and if you know about the history of the Catholic Church, and this is where I'll go back to Matthew 16, this is as good a time as any, the, the Roman Catholic Church believes that it started with Peter, correct? So those of you, if you have your Bible, go with me to Matthew 16. So Matthew 16, uh, you know this, is the first great confession in the Bible uh, where Jesus asks his disciples, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? Um, somebody somebody have that back there. Um, someone want to someone read that in the back so we can all hear. Jason, oh, do you want to read that? Matthew 16, read that section, whatever verses those are, where Jesus enters asks the question, and then Peter confesses that, and then Christ responds. Would you? Okay, so verse 13, go back. Who do men say that I am? Verse 14, the response is all very positive. <laughs> um, John the Baptist was known as being a great preacher. Great preacher. So Jesus, they heard him speak, preach, thought he's John. Um, what was Elijah known for? The, the prophet of miracles. So some think you're Elijah. Jeremiah was the Old Testament prophet known for what? Weeping, compassion, all pretty good things. He's a great, they, they were uh, seen in Jesus. He's compassionate, he works miracles, he is a powerful teacher, preaches one with authority. But then he gets more specific. Who do you say that? Peter speaks for the group and confesses, right? Verse 16, you are the Messiah, this anointed one, this consolation of Israel, the one that we've been looking for, the son of the living God. So that's this first confession, right? He, 
So he personally confesses Christ. Um, speaking for all of them, Jesus commends the confession, right? In verse 17, blessed are you. What does, mean, what does it mean that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you? Talk a little bit louder. Help me out. Yeah. Um, this wasn't just something you figured out on your own, but who? My father. God is working in you, through you, to bring you. Do, do you believe that people today just on their own get up sometime logically and think, I'm going to confess Christ today? No. John 6, 44, unless the Spirit draw them. John 16, 34, unless the Holy Spirit convicts sin and right. So there's this, but God, who is rich in mercy, right? So he speaks, he draws when we're dead in our trespasses. So there, it's, conversion is a work of the Spirit. We talked about that last week, John 3. Spirit moves and works. Nicodemus, do you not understand? You've had a physical birth, the water, right? The womb, water of the womb breaks, ushering in physical birth, but then there's a work of the spirit. And just as real as your physical birth, so also is your spiritual birth. It's a, a birth of the spirit. And so Jesus commends Peter's confession, and, and then he says something to him, and I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, I will build my church. What's the rock? Well, huh? His faith, this confession. So this is a, this is a very significant, and upon this rock, I will build my church. So a Catholic priest, a Catholic individual who goes to Catholic seminary is going to be taught Matthew 16, the interpretation is that the rock is who? The Pope. Right? So the church is built on the Pope. Papal succession. Peter was the first Pope. Okay? That's, that's a big deal. Was Jesus saying he was going to build the church on Peter? No. If you read, if you go through and read Peter, letters of Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter, it's very clear. He's, he doesn't see himself as the foundation. 1st Peter 2 talks about a, a, a foundation being laid in Zion, a sure foundation, a stone, a precious stone. Who does he say that is? It's Christ. But the Catholic Church believes it's Peter. And so they, they get into papal infallibility, ex-cathedra, when the, when, the, when the Pope speaks and he declares he's speaking ex-cathedra, he's speaking as God. Okay? Which, that's a big deal. Because as you get into the history of the early church, second century, third century, and when they're espousing papal authority, that, that begins to take root and you start getting some corrupt popes <laughs> and who are involved in affairs 
adultery, they're involved in money scandals, uh, corruption, when they uh, start controlling kings and uh, leaders, they develop a lot of power and the church becomes pretty corrupt over a period of time. And uh, so I'm just, I'm just pointing this out biblically. That's kind of the foundation that leads to a lot of this. And so if you go back, and so Roman Empire is taken, Latin is spreading, more and more people now read and write in Latin, in Latin and there is no scripture for them. So thus, Jerome. And uh, he was hired... So he's born in 347, so you can do the math, 380, so in the year, how many years would that have been? Uh, 30, so at the age of 33, is that right? 347 to 380? Is my math right, Steve? Uh, he is hired by Pope Damasus I, and he's, he's employed by the Pope to stop, uh, to combat doctrinal errors. So this was in 380 AD. So things like, and this is not hard to imagine, do do you think people have, people, preachers, teachers today come up with crazy views of the Bible today? Right? And we have scripture readily available to us and there's all kinds of things uh, um, that corrupt things that are being taught uh, today. I won't get off onto that rabbit. But let me share a few things that, that threatened the church in the first few centuries. Have any of you heard of uh, Arianism? Some of you shaking your head. Arianism was a view that Jesus was not fully God. It was a view that um, Mormons have today, Jehovah's Witnesses have today. Do they believe that in Jesus? Sure they do. Do they believe that he was fully God, equal with God, one with God? No, they don't. They believe that Jesus was created. He was divine, but he was a created being less than God. That was Arianism. That emerged in uh, the third century. And... uh, that God was not fully God, he was divine, he was above angels, but he was created later by God, and so thus there was a church council, they got scholars together, and it was called the Council of Constantinople, and they wrote the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, uh, and by the way, if you read that, it'll, it'll say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church in the Nicene Creed. Well, that was, at that time, the church was was not that bad yet. <laughs> so it wasn't like the Catholic Church. So, But that was to combat and to provide clarity on who Jesus was, that he was fully God and fully man. And so they developed this creed to take an official position doctrinally. Um, then there was this, another one called pneumataki. Pneuma sounds like where we get the word spirit. I talk, mentioned that last Wednesday night. Pneumataki was denying that the Holy Spirit was God. So they believed that God the Father and Jesus the Son were one, but the Spirit was not part of the Godhead. The Spirit was just a, 
I don't really exactly know what they taught, but it was, he wasn't one with the Father. They believed in the Spirit, but he, he wasn't equal with God, so they were called Pneumatakians. And so Pope Damasus hired Jerome, since he was a Bible scholar, hey, I want you to write things for the Catholic Church to combat Arianism. I want you to write things to combat uh, uh this uh, Pneumataki, Tamakians, combat that. And then there was another one called Biopolis, Apollinarianism, which distorted the incarnation of Christ. They believe the Apollinarians believe that Jesus was fully God, and in the incarnation, he was, he was God, he was fully, but he wasn't fully man. He still, he didn't have a human mind. That was Apollinarianism. And so, again, Jerome, write materials, produce materials, take a position for us as a church that we can clarify these doctrinal errors. And so that's what he, he was employed to do. Pope Damasus dies off, Jerome stays in, in his role, and he, he uh, sees that one of the greatest needs was to provide a translation of the Bible into Latin. And so he starts that you want to combat doctrinal errors, let's, let's come up with a Bible uh, in Latin that we can have to work off of. And so he, he was the first one to go um, back to the Hebrew and translate it into Latin. He didn't go back to the Greek Septuagint. So remember Hebrew, then you have the Greek Septuagint. He went all the way back to the Hebrew and produced a Latin translation. And so the idea was for Western civilization, as the world grew and expanded from the east into Europe, the church was growing. Uh, he, he was, and, and he did it by himself. Spent 30 years translating the Hebrew Bible, also the Greek. He knew Hebrew and Greek spent 30 years of his life. He started in 382 and spent 30 years translating the Bible into Latin, thus the Latin Vulgate. Um, uh, what do you think the... Now, now you, guys, you guys know something about Catholic theology. The, the Catholic Church... Um, uh, you know, they were at that time, um, I mean, this was ordered, they, they supported it, but the Catholic Church um, rejected the Latin Vulgate because he left out the Apocrypha. And so you remember, you go back, think a little bit, the Hebrew canon was closed before 400 BC. So you remember that interbiblical period where there's no word from the Lord? So the Hebrew Bible was canonized before then. There were other things being right, written during that interbiblical period, the books of the Apocrypha. And so when the Septuagint was translated, the, those apocryphal books were included in, in the Greek translation into the Septuagint, which was widely accepted except when Jerome went back to translate, he saw when he went back to the Hebrew, he saw that the Hebrew Bible, the first Bible, didn't include the Apocrypha. 
And so he left it out. And thus the Catholic Church rejected his translation of the Latin because they, they supported the Apocrypha. The Catholic Church today still has the Apocrypha. So they rejected his translation. Um, and actually, um, Jerome died in 420 at the age of seven, 70, uh, 73. But uh, uh, again, his, his translation was the only one that there was. It was being copied slowly, but it wasn't recognized by the Catholic Church. It wasn't too popular. Um, during the 8th and ninth centuries, still you had either had the Hebrew Bible, you had the Greek Septuagint, or for the next four or 500 years, all there was was the Latin Bible. Then something else started happening. So let me stop there. Is it questions? So think about, okay, so think about up now to the 8th or ninth century, 700s, 800s AD, there's only three translations. Hebrew, historically, then your Greek, then your Latin. Rick, do you have a... There were like two or three books in the Old Testament that we believe were written in Aramaic, possibly a Daniel, and I forget the other two. Those eventually be, were, became part of the Greek Septuagint, and then when they when Jerome went back, those were pulled into the Latin as well. Uh, that was that was one of the amazing things about these guys was we we don't. I mean, I have I have a hard time with English. Really, grammar, um, adverbs and verbs and tenses and understanding, you know, grammatically. And you think about then learning Greek and learning Hebrew and learning Aramaic and learning Latin. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Some of the, these guys uh, that, were, that were used of the Lord to... Uh, spread the word. So, good question. Other other questions that you have? So, um, eighth and ninth century comes in. Uh, guess what happens to the language, the Latin language? So, Western civilization is emerging. Population is growing. That means it starts in the east, and it moves into where? Into Europe. Um, to those other areas, the church is growing there. Latin starts dying off. And so now you've got another problem with the scriptures. And um, European languages were emerging. There, based on which historian you read, they will, either, they will tell you there were three languages uh, that led to Western civilization, or some scholars will say there are five languages. I think there were... From what I read, five Russian, French, Italian, German, and English. And so um, the Latin Vulgate was translated. Um, for the first time, it was moved into English. And um, and I'll get to a guy named uh, to uh, Wycliffe in just a mo just a moment. So. Um, but let me back up. I skipped over something. During, during the, those ages, uh, from middle of the fourth century, during, during 
um, Jerome's time, coming up with the Latin Vulgate. Go back, think about, so how were Bibles reproduced? The Catholic Church was not, did not accept the Latin Vulgate, but it was still being translated. And, and so, um, you guys, some of, some of the medieval ages during those times, gradually, um, there were improvements. Ink was improving, pens, quills were improving, script, how they wrote was improving, changing, sentence separation, spacing, vowels, punctuation, all of that was improving to make the Bible more readable and to make it more accurate. So those things started to happen and um, Jerome's Vulgate started gaining popularity. Even though the, the, the Catholic Church rejected it, those who got copies of it, it started spreading and was more accepted by people. Um, I read a little thing too, was uh, the Bibles begin to get bigger and change. Have any of you seen pictures of old, those old hand-translated Bibles, the calligraphy in them or the artwork? Um, I read about one of them that was tr called the, the Devil's Translation. It was the Latin Vulgate, but it was reproduced, and some of the artists in the book of Revelation had a full, full uh, one whole page, and he had a, a written picture of the devil. And so that, that version of the Bible was known as the devil's Bible because of that picture of Satan in the book of Revelation. But they became wor really works of art. I want to I read something to you about the, the translation process. Um, I thought it was just pretty fascinating. I, I would have never thought about this. So we're talking about the Latin Vulgate being reproduced. Okay, so listen to this. Copies were wildly expensive. Each, so each copy, each required roughly 1,500 sheep to produce enough hides, later turned into parchment. For one, for one Bible. To make one complete Bible and three volumes. The Leon Bible... In 960 was created in modern Spain and it took an estimated 155 cows to produce it. While these were agrarian days and animals were plentiful in some areas, the sheer number of animal skins needed to produce one copy of the Bible is staggering. And this is not even factoring in the cost of manufacturing ink, quills, and binding for the final books. To top it off, there needed to be at least one scribe with a practiced hand capable of copying the text. Ideally, several scribes would work in unison, but then a supervisor was needed to ensure each page passed without errors. A well-stocked and well-trained monastery, monasteries, you think about history of those? One of the reasons they were established was they were devoted to reproducing scripture. So, um, well-stocked, well-trained monastery would typically produce two to four complete Bibles in a year. Even this speed was not always possible. A monk working in what is modern Brussels indicated that while he wanted to make a complete Bible, 
Every two years, it sometimes took him a third year to complete the project. Scribes and artists, of course, do not spring from the soil. They need to be trained and mentored in the craft and all to produce copies of the Bible at a sluggish pace. Materials, expertise, and time, these all made a medieval Bible expensive. Due to the high cost, Bibles produced in the Middle Ages were never sold commercially. If we look for a modern counterpart to a medieval Bible production, it would be more like funding a church building campaign for one Bible. In fact, there are notable cases where monasteries or cathedral churches ran these types of funding campaigns to obtain one complete copy of the Bible for their church. That's it's amazing, isn't it? 1,500 or 900 sheep, 1,500 cows, hides that were needed to produce one Bible. By the way, I read that that some of those Bibles during those, those times when, this, when they were being reproduced in Latin, uh, they got larger and larger. Some of them were 36 inches high, um, as, as much as 14 inches thick. One, in some, in some cases, it took three volumes to make one complete Bible. So, I mean... I'd never, any of you ever, I didn't, I didn't, never thought about this. Uh, who had access to these Bibles? The truth is the problem, the problem of illiteracy among lay Christians was an impossible hurdle for most of Christian history. And the problem increased in the Middle Ages. There were no primary schools as we have today teaching children to read. So even if the cost of producing a Bible were somehow reduced, the demand for personal Bibles was non-existent. The lack of access to the Bible was not a result of the church taking the Bible away from the laity as it was impossible to produce Bibles for everyone to have. I, I told you a couple weeks ago, I counted, I got 45 to 50, 60 Bibles in my office. And some of you have you said had all kinds of copies in your place. We, we, have, we have no idea. You go back to the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament after God's people had been in exile, some of them in the northern kingdom for 150 plus years, some from the southern kingdom had been in, in there for 70 years. Do you remember when they went back under um, first Zerubbabel and they rebuilt the temple, then Nehemiah and Esther? And you remember Esther is the one who is Ezra, I mean, Ezra is the, not Esther. <laughs> Ezra is the one who goes back and he reads the Bible. And you remember what the Bible says when the people hear it? Do you remember their response? Huh? They wept. And it says that Ezra read it from sunup to sundown, and the people listened all day long. Why? Some of them hadn't heard it, heard it read in 150 years, generations, some for 70. Some had died off, some kids, some grandkids, they were probably taught orally the stories of God and what God had done, but had never heard the scriptures read. It's just, it's pretty convicting. 
that you and I take it for granted and we have it and we don't even read it. You know? Um, it also says that uh, a lot of these Bibles, when, they, when a church or a group got their own, they would lock them up, chain them up. And it wasn't to prevent people from having access to it. It was to prevent people from stealing them. <laughs> very expensive, very valuable. Um, by the way, that money would be comparable. Getting your own Bible would be comparable to a modern-day building program. What would you think would be the average cost of a modern-day building program that a church? If we were going to go in, let's say we got this one paid for. Hopefully, we will in a few more years. Amen. But if we were going to a building program, what would you think would be the average cost of a building program? I, what, Steve? Five million? Yeah. Maybe. Would, would, if we had no Bible, you think we would all pitch in? Let's say it was just a million. Would you be in for pitching in to, to make sure we had a copy? Um, I wanted to read something else here. Um, something pretty significant happened. Uh, you guys know that allowed scripture to be mass produced. One was the decreased co cost and increased quality of parchment and paper. Today our Bibles are all on onion skins, uh, paper. Another way, another way to mass produce the Bible quickly came through the press. And by the way, this you guys hear the Gutenberg Press in the 1400. There were other presses that were existent, um, but the, the press... It had to be handmade, and so Gutenberg was the first one to come up with a frame and insert metal letters. I think type it's called typesetting, where you news, nobody does this anymore. <laughs> but right, newspapers would still do that. You know, they would have a typesetter and they would take these metal letters and load in the paper, and then you just move, you just print it. Gutenberg was the first one to come up with that which allowed for these, these scriptures to be mass-produced uh, um, again. So i just just saying that um, just pretty fascinating, really, as the, the Bible was reproduced. Um, let me say a couple of things. I'll talk about John Wycliffe here in the end, but a couple of things about translations. When you're translating, you're translating whatever language you're translating from is the source and the translation you're going to is the receptor. So what did you do? What did translators do when they were moving from the source, trying to produce this receptor, this new translation, and there was no word? Okay, so what, do you, what, did, what did they do? So in certain languages, how many of you were in that Spanish class really recently with Felipe? There are some words in Spanish that they're not, you have no Spanish equivalent to the English word, and there's some words in Spanish where there's no equivalent word in English. So as translators got into translating Bibles, what did they do when there was no identical word to translate it in? Or sometimes you go back to the Old Testament, there's like phrases, figures of speech. 
So translators were pretty challenging. And think about one guy. So like Jerome doing this all by himself. I, I can't imagine. So um, let me give you some examples of this, and then I'll make a couple comments about translations. So think about Old Testament vocabulary. Just, I'm just going to go through some examples of this. In the Old Testament, originally in Hebrew, or Hebrew, the word to cut meant to decide. To be true back then meant to be firmly fixed. To be straight meant you were right. To be heavy, to be heavy meant you were honorable. Uh, to miss the mark, by the way, in the Old Testament, there's no word for sin. There's no word that's, that's the word sin didn't exist in the Old Testament. You had, you had words they would use for sin like crooked or rebellious or trespass, but the, the word sin did not exist in the Hebrew. They had different words they used for that. So the idea, the meaning was there, but no word for sin. Um, the heart or kidneys referred to the mind. So you read the Old Testament, you think about, so a man reasons in his heart, refers to the mind. The bowels refer to what? Some of you should know this. Emotion. Uh, horn means strength. Bones means self. Seed, what does seed mean? Well, it can be seed that you put in the ground or it can mean your descendants. Um, falling face means displeasure. Um, shining face means acceptance. Nostril means anger, conveys anger. So you think about flaring of the nostrils, but the word nostril meant anger. Um, arm, the word arm meant strength. I mean, if we, we, we read that today, we would have no idea. That's why also when you're, when you're studying the Bible, you cannot use an American dictionary to understand the Bible because some Bible words do not mean what the American dictionary says they mean. You, you'll, you'll get off track. Um, remember I talked about that last week in the Old Testament you remember the word where it says God repented God regretted remember me talking about that well in 1611 when the King James Bible was produced the word repent the word which the Hebrew word means to breathe heavy to sigh and so when God repented when God regretted he, there was this sigh this emotion well, in the King James Version in 1611, the word repent or regret still conveyed that same meaning. That's not what it means today. So we, were the, we read the King James Version today when it says in all those Old Testament passages where say God regretted that he made man in Genesis 6 or God repented that he did this. or That means, well, we would think that, oh, wow, God's changing his mind. That's not what that means at all. Does God change his mind? No. Never. Does he feel emotion? Absolutely. He sighed. He regretted. It's a heavy, heavy breath. Um, do you know the phrase, apple of his eye? Do you all know what that means? What, is that, what does it mean that your daughter is the apple of your eye, Dale? 
She's the best. Apple of my. That comes from the Hebrew Bible. We got that one. Um, somebody got by by the skin of their teeth. That's in the Bible. That was in the Hebrew Bible. Translators left it alone and hoped that we would figure out what it meant. And evidently we have because they're, um, there's a phrase in the Old Testament, to uncover the ear. What does that mean? That's still in the Bible. To uncover the ear, which means to reveal something. Um, to stiffen the neck. Do we know what that means? Somebody who is stiff-necked means what, Roy? Hard-hearted, stubborn. Jesus said, because of your stiff-neckedness neck or stiff-neckedness neck or whatever that is, God, uh, Moses permitted a divorce, but God never. That would be equivalent today from being hard-hearted. You're just hard-hearted, you know. Um, to, what does it mean to bend somebody's ear? A person came in and just bent my ear for an hour. It's from the Bible. It means they just kind of wore you out, <laughs> you know, from listening so much. So, so what did, back to my question, what did translators do? So this is important for you to understand about our Bibles today. There are different kinds of approaches that translators use to come up with Bible translations. This is still being done. So there are still translations that are coming forth every year, most of them through Wycliffe. So when you, when you have a language and there's no, there's no word, what do you do? So scholars will approach this in one of two ways. They will come up with word-for-word -word translations or they will come up with what's called a dynamic equivalent. A word-for-word -word translation is when they'll go to the word, the original word, say a Greek word, pneuma, which means spirit. Well, we have a word for that. Right, we would translate it spirit. Well, what I, uh, if there was another, not an equivalent word, then they would come up with a word that is as close to it as they can get. That's one approach to try to come up with a word-for-word -word equivalent translation. The other approach is a dynamic equivalent. Some, do any of you use the New International Version, the NIV? Okay, it's a dynamic equivalent. They don't try to. They will. They, if there's a word. That's just like the original word, they will use it. But if there's no equivalent word, they'll use a phrase. They may use two or three or four words to convey the original word. So it's called a dynamic equivalent. Dynamic equivalents like the NIV are great to read from because they make it readable and understandable, but they're not the best to study from because if you have a dynamic equivalent, you have a phrase and you go to look up what that phrase means, you don't have the original word to go back and study from. Does that make sense? So if I wanted to um, try and think of a, the word I use Sunday about persistence, the original Greek word means shameless. Uh, this might be a bad, so I can go back and see what that original word was in the Greek text. Well, if there's, a, if there's a phrase that describes that, how do you look up the origin of a phrase? So you might understand the meaning a little better, but, but I'm, so I'm not saying they're bad because they help people. 
If you study a text on your Sunday school class and you're getting ready to teach, it might be good for you to read a word equivalent, like the, the King James was a word equivalent, New King James is word equivalent, ESV, word equivalent Bibles. So it might be good for you to read those, but it might be also good for you to have a companion dynamic equivalent like the NIV to read to help you to understand it. So I do that a lot. Roy? The NAS is supposed to be very accurate. There, there's the newest scholar, the newest one. They're saying today now that most scholars will say now today is the ESV is supposed to be the most uh, accurate historic. You, you got to remember, they're still finding, they're still finding uh, texts. Remember, I mentioned in 1947 the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in Qumran. That was a huge deal. All of the Old Testament books were there. Um, they were able to go back and verify the accuracy of those books. So, um, so just just something to think about. And by the way, if you're if you're picking out a Bible, most Bibles will have an introductory part here where it will explain the translation process of that Bible. There'll be a preface, and it will say this, and it will tell you this is a dynamic equivalent. The translators on this project worked uh, to try to come up with a word-for-word -word approach. So that's, that's in, your, in your preface. Um, so I'm, I'm going a little over time. A little over time. Um, um, I didn't get to John Wycliffe. Um, so really fascinating. So I hope you come. We'll get into Wycliffe and Tyndale. Um, talk about those starting next week. So let me close. What questions do you have? Is this helpful? Is it interesting? Yeah. So Hebrew, Old Testament, then you have the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament into Greek. That gave way to the Latin in about the fourth century. Um, so to, to guy named Jerome. So he would translated the Latin, but left out the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha got included in the Greek Septuagint. And so, so that kind of bring us, that'll bring us up to, um, to, the, to uh, John Wycliffe, a Catholic priest who got into it with a pope. And um, because the popes were being so corrupt, so Wycliffe in England, did you know you... I'm just going to tell you one of my favorite movie, man movies, Braveheart. You just, you know, I just love Braveheart. You remember when, you remember when William Wallace is leading this revolt and he goes in to attack, and in England he talks about sacking the city York. Okay, I don't know how accurate historically everything is in Braveheart, but. Uh, city of Yorkshire in northern England was where John Wycliffe was born and he was a priest and he 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 turned against the popes and he he uh, well I'll get into that more of that next week so uh, they they the even after he was dead he was he was um, uh, there was a decree that he was, I forget what the name of the decree was, he died in like 1380 or something like that, and then in 14, 
28, they dug up his bones and burned him because he translated the Latin into English. And so, and the church didn't want, the church, the Catholic church did not want that Bible translated away from Latin. By the way, do you, do, how many of you remember, if any of you have any uh, background on Catholic churches, Latin was still used up until when in churches around the world and people in this country. You go to, you grew up Catholic, went to a Catholic church, it was all in Latin. Second Vatican, Council of Vatican, um, 16, 1962 to 65 during that three year period was the first night. Now think about this. That was in my lifetime. I was born in 61. 62 to 65 for the first time the Vatican said that masses, worship services could be led and you didn't have to use Latin. You want to know why? I'm just saying this. Not all, but you want to know, want to know why most Catholics don't know the Bible? They never were, it's not a part of their history. They, they never had the Bible for themselves. That's what, really, Wycliffe was known as the morning star of the Reformation. What he did paved the way for the Reformation. He was a priest himself. He saw the corruption in the Catholic Church, wanted it to reform, it wouldn't reform, and they certainly didn't want him translating the Latin into, into English, first modern English version that we have, so he, Anyway, we'll stop there. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the, tonight. We're grateful, Lord, for your word. Um, help us to study and read and, uh, God, to have a right standing with you. Um, we need not to be ashamed. Um, so we're thankful for the scriptures. and pray you'd guide us into all truth. Bless us as we go forth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.